We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. like conservative politicians when a new video game comes out. The game at PSV has everybody asking, won't somebody think of the children? This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, anytime like a, right, a, a shooter video game used to come out or hip-hop music used to come out, we'd hear, won't somebody think of the children? Well, that's the question being asked after PSV. When Aerie didn't start, or Walters didn't start, there were no children involved whatsoever. In fact, no minutes for any children. Um, neither of my children got on in the game and I am outraged about it as outraged as you are. I'm sure. I think the big debate is going to be about rest rotation and Academy debuts. Cause that's, what's driving a lot of the discussion right now. But of course we will also talk about potential knockout round opposition. We'll talk about, um, who United might face in the next round of the champions. League. No, that's wrong. Scratch that who United might face in the Europa. No, that's wrong. Scratch that out. What I think could be quite hilarious. Now, I don't think United will finish fifth. I think think they'll finish probably closer to 10th in the Premier League. But it would be funny if being so shit they finished last in the group meant that they lowered England's coefficient rating, which meant that fifth place in the Premier League didn't get a Champions League spot, which if they finish fifth means they don't get Champions League next season. That, That would be a funny domino effect of stuff. We'll have three big questions, which is, podcast title and podcast subject uh, over on Patreon tomorrow. And I hope you'll join us for that. And basically just hope you're doing fantastically well on this day when Arsenal Football Club is in the knockout round of the Champions League, having topped the group. Let's keep that in mind. Brighton visits this weekend. We'll talk about that as well. Tim's on Twitter at Stillmanator. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul is on Twitter. Pause my pants. Hello, pause. Woohoo! Clive said he wouldn't come on in what he calls a, a silent protest of the Academy kids not playing, not playing at PSV. Tim was there. Uh, We will hear about all that and much, much more. So first of all, Tim, like super, super quickly, 
you finally made it to an away game in Europe, and boy, was there heat coming off that pitch. How was <laughs> how was that crunch tie for you over there? Yeah, it's great going to the uh, the dead rubber games. Match day six, they're some of my favourites because they're all about uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and the atmosphere, you know, it tends to be a little bit more relaxed, shall we say? Um, and and it becomes a lot more about the trip. And yeah, this this was a good one. I've been to Eindhoven many times before. Um, people from there, forgive me for saying it's not the most exciting city. It's perfectly pleasant. That's mm. fine. Not every city in the world has to be the most exciting city, but there are plenty of places to get a beer. Um, mm. Dutch people, very, very sound um, in general. So yeah, good trip. Um, nearly missed my flight home, uh, which was which was fantastic because my room was so hot. I had to go down to reception at 1am and ask for uh, a significant upgrade on the fan that I had in my room and I had to have it blowing on my face all night because it was so hot and uh, so I didn't hear my alarm. Um, so that, that was that was a little extra feature, waking up in a panic an hour after my alarm was had gone off and frantically trying to get a cab to the airport, which I managed, so all good. So well, you had a PSV fan in your room. And you went downstairs and asked for a larger I, one. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Only fans, um, as it goes. No, it's yeah. It was. It, it's unbelievable. The fact that they had a fan in the room in the first place, like the climate of Eindhoven in December, but not typically the sort of time of year or place where you'd need a fan. But there was one in there, so clearly they were aware that my room was the greenhouse room. And when I say it was hot. I don't just mean like, oh, it's a bit warm in here. Like I'm sat next to my radiator at home at the moment and it's a bit like, oh, I might, might, I've got my socks on, might take my socks off. This was like, you know, when you get off a plane in a hot country and mm. the heat hits you and you just immediately form a layer of sweat. It was like that. It was like unbearable. And even like the hotel staff were like walked in and were like, whoa, yeah, you're right. You can't sleep in here. And uh, yeah, so a l- little bit of wrangling there. But other than that... <laughs> Sounds trip. lovely. Sounds lovely. Enjoyed the uh, sounds of the the mise en place that you provided us uh, when when you did the instant reaction. It, it's funny. I had a friend who got married in the Caribbean. Um, they fell in love with well, they fell in love on an island and with an island called Joost Van Dyke. It's a tiny island in uh, in the Caribbean, and they decided they wanted to get married there. So they rented out a bunch of bungalows on this island and realized you cannot fly to this island. You have to take a very small boat to this island. There's one road that sort of traverses the hilly topography of this island. It is not a place most people have been to or would even consider going to. And my wife, Tanya, and I went to this wedding and we walked past bungalow one, which has like plunge pools and stairs down to the ocean. We walked past bungalow two, which has a plunge pool and stairs to the ocean. Bungalow three, which is sort of like a woodland wonderland of like open floor plans and and flowy uh, design and architecture. And bungalow four, where we stayed, which was like a sealed containment facility <laughs> in the woods was surrounded by mosquitoes one fan in the upper corner of the room this is the caribbean in like summertime mm. absolutely unbearable two bedrooms and the couple that we were staying with were um how do i say this swingers and <laughs> every night uh before we tried to go to bed like sitting as still as humanly possible because it was so hot they asked if we would like to you know explore uh, bodies with one another so it was a hellish nightmare that yeah i mean that wouldn't cool you down either really if anything, no that's that the point no we wanted to things. explore bodies but it's too hot for it yeah anywho um that's that's our attempt at waffle andrew james what? eat your heart out me? oh yeah paul do, do you have anything you want to 
talk about that I'll have to edit out of the podcast? <laughs> uh, I've been on vacations where things were like very warm and stuff and it was hot. Okay, cool. That worked. You did well there, by the way. Way to go. <laughs> Chip off the old block. Okay. Um, so l- let me ask this of you, Paul, first. When it comes to arguing what these lineups should be, a lot of people, and look, I want to be clear. My personal view is play the tea lady, play the kit man, play the kids. Like, that's my personal view. I will explain why I understand why that's not realistic in a moment. But I think the argument that I find least compelling in these debates around lineups is culture of winning. You need a culture of win. It, it, it would be two losses in a row if we had lost this game. You need to maintain the culture of winning. Like, what does that get you? I've never seen any evidence that that actually matters or gets you anything. I mean, just ask League Cup champion Manchester United, who then lost 7-0 to Liverpool, and now we're going on to have a dreadful season again. Like, we topped the group, no matter what happened in this game. So for all, whatever the arguments are around resting or not resting or playing the kids or not playing the kids, do you find this sort of culture of winning and standards argument compelling as a reason to keep playing strong teams regardless of what the game means? Absolutely within reason, right? Mm. Okay, interesting. I don't think you see the top teams in the world turning out a bunch of players you've never heard of to play a dead rubber. And so the... The interview with Arteta afterwards was instructive. He apparently does believe in what you're talking about. He talked about, he saw the body language. He saw the intensity. Uh, We lacked a bit of fluency. And I think that tells you everything about a team. Arteta is not going to put out a bunch of players who play a bunch of schlock because he doesn't care. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's, it's not linear. It's not when you're playing positional football, I think in particular, if you're playing four four two or four three three, and you're keeping it pretty simple, then if you play players who are not quite as good as you, your regular lineup, the performance is not quite as good. But if you play positional play where it's all triggers, synchronicities, you move here, that guy moves there, you move into this line, and you need a technical level, and you drop it down a bit, you you don't drop down the performance a little bit. It falls off a cliff and you have this embarrassing show that's not doing any of the players on the pitch any good, not doing the focus of the team. Like, I think he's all about a winning mentality, a winning club, as most other... We're not the 15th or 20th or 25th best club in the world anymore, which we were for a while, or in Europe. Mm. At least I hope we're not. We're aspiring, at least... To go all the way in the Champions League this year, it's there for teams. We need a lot of luck. We need some good breaks. We need everybody staying fit. And we need, you know, it, we need to be on it on the day. But we could go really deep in this co- competition. And I don't know how it helps anybody to put out a weaker team where the good players, whatever two or three good players on the pitch are going to have to work super hard or shouldn't be there. It's like you just let the manager do his thing. Uh, that's what I think. And then yeah. there's a whole conversation about the young guys, which I'm We're going to come on to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, um, it, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So, no, I think that's a great starting point. And, and look, I view this game as a preseason game, just midseason. So I think you treat it as a training exercise in some respects. And 
in a training exercise, you wouldn't just play the kids and the tea lady and the kit man. You'd play some first team players who need a little sharpness. You'd play some first team players who are playing their way back into top fitness. You'd focus on periodization, whoever needed that extra workout. Note, Zinchenko didn't come on, Saka didn't come on, and Martinelli was left at home. They have all the data, Tim. See, I want to be clear, right? This is all risk versus reward analysis. What is the reward of winning this game? It's a few million quid, so that's something. But other than that, like, there's no real reward. You've topped the group regardless. The other reward is maybe some players get sharper, they get fitter, they get their periodization in, whatever, you know, whatever that is. The risk is they get injured in the game. What I would say is that if you look at all the big clubs, look at Madrid, look at Bayern, look at Arsenal, look at Manchester City, all played dead rubbers, all used critical first-team players in their game, right? Like, like Bellingham started for Real Madrid. Uh, Bayern started Harry Kane, right? I mean, you look at, and again, in total dead rubbers. I think the idea that all the big clubs with some of the biggest high-performance groups in the world and GPS tracking data and biometric data on their players simply haven't figured out that playing is risky. They haven't figured that out. That That's beyond their, their capability to understand. Like, that doesn't tally. What tallies for me is my fears, my worry that, players could get injured in meaningless games is something I cannot measure against what they know, which is actually they know based on the GPS data, based on high performance teams, based on years of the advancing in, in training regiments and, and training science that actually for some of these players, this playing time keeps them in a shape where they are less likely to sustain those soft tissue injuries as games come every three or four days for the next couple of months. And so that what they're doing is following the direction of the high performance team. And then for the guys that are in the red zone, a Saka, a Martinelli, a Zinchenko, something like that, they don't play. So Tim, I, because I'll, I'll admit my whiskers default is this is idiotic. Why are we risking anyone? If Saliba gets injured in this game, our season is over. But I would submit that given the amount of data they have and given what all these other big clubs are doing, we should at least accept the possibility, nay, the likelihood that they know some stuff about why this is the approach you should take for long-term sustainability. Yeah, that's all well said. It reminds me of, I've forgotten what the principle's called, but there's something about um, if a headline on a newspaper or, an, or a news item is a question, the answer's always no. <laughs> um, like, can Spurs win the league <laughs> when they put three wins together? No, because otherwise you wouldn't be asking the question. Um, it, and it's kind of the same here. So everything you've said is absolutely right. Like the presumption that you know, with all of this expertise that clubs make like really stupid decisions around this. And like you said, it's on an individual basis as well. And, and we can see some of that with our eyes, right? If you told me like four critical first team players are going to get no minutes in this game, I'd be able to tell you, well, sorry, three. Jesus got like a few minutes at the end, right? Mm. Like that's, those are the guys you'd name. You'd say Zinchenko because he's injury prone and we know that and we know he's a bit of a 70-minute player. And you'd have said Saka and Martinelli because, well, A, they're very important, but also we kind of hammer them. They play 90, particularly Saka, like nearly 90 minutes every game. So, you don't, you know, you don't, those guys are more likely to be in the red zone. I, I you know, accept. And like Jesus has just come back from a hamstring injury and we've played him every game. So like all of those decisions make sense. And I, I won't go into this too much because I've said it a few times lately, but like 
I've had conversations with strength and conditioning coaches who've said that, you know, the thinking around periodization is, you know, it's, it's all very well for us, say, give them this game off, but that kind of means they get the training session off, the recovery day off. So they're actually missing like three quite important days and a lot yeah, of the you could leave them back at, at the club to train but if you bring them with you and don't play them they basically have a day they lose part of their regular session yeah yeah and that takes them out of their rhythm and there are some players and i think this would go for someone like saka i remember listening to an interview with the guy who used to be head of strength and conditioning at everton and he said like you manage players on an individual basis and you can see we're doing that this season you can see zinchenko rarely plays 90 minutes he comes off like we've seen over the last year or so thomas Partey on the rare occasions he is fit he's managed like if he was if if he'd been fit for the last month he'd have been one of the ones left at home for this and he talked about managing tim cahill at everton and he said like tim cahill was one of those players who had to play 90 minutes every three days and he used to go back and play for australia and he talked about there was one time he said the one injury tim cahill got at everton was guess when they rested him after an international break because he came back from australia on friday morning they decided to leave him out came on and you know got a knock or something i don't think it was massively serious but he was talking about and he was talking about mo salah as well and he was saying like this is a guy like his rhythm is playing every three days playing every game and once a player's in a rhythm you've got to keep them in it basically mm-hmm. and my kind of understanding of that as well is that changes in the second half of the season because what the first half of the season is it's about tuning up right because you can't start at your peak you've got to work up to your peak and that means you need the workload in the second half of the season players get a lot more days off so from like march onwards they almost get a day off like every fortnight or every week because they're tuned like they don't need as much workload it's just in march and april you don't have dead rubber champions league games or carabao cup games they all happen in the first half of the season but also i'm slightly confused by the conversation as well in that we played cedric like that's how much like that like he hasn't even started the carabao cup game cedric but we started cedric we started el nenny he even started ramsdale right and that um that that kind of Mm. That tells you how eight changes, I believe. Yeah, that that tells you how he regarded this game. It completely tells you. And then some of the first teamers came on for the last twenty minutes because twenty minutes of a Champions League game is probably roughly equivalent to a ninety-minute training session, and they got Mm. their training session. So you're right; they did treat it almost like pre-season. It was just get your twenty minutes, come in tomorrow for your massage and your day off, and that's all good. So. You know, it's it's. I know we'll we'll do the the young players separately part. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's completely in line with kind of what Man City did. John Stone started, Akanji started. You know, I think for you know they started a lot of big Real players. Started Foden came yep. on. I mean, um, Real Madrid, as I said, they started some key first team players. Bayern started. Bayern, Kane. Like, yeah. I can go. Yeah, all the biggest clubs with the most resources to understand the health and fitness of their players and what is best for their players all behaved in a similar fashion in dead rubbers. Now, I want to be careful. That is an appeal to authority, logical fallacy, right? They have to be right because they're the authority. They just know better than us. I tend not to like that argument. The reason I'm putting forward that argument is I think we are weighing what our eyes can see. Player could get hurt playing against what we cannot see and do not know. 
what are the high performance teams telling them? What are the GPS data telling them? You know, what, what are the other things they might know that we don't? Is it possible that they are stupidly risking players against their own interest and all the big clubs are doing it? Of course that's possible. And look, there is a risk. The risk is they play in the game and get injured. It's just we don't know what the risk is if they get the whole day off and don't play in terms of what the high-performance teams and GPS data say about periodization. So I, I don't want to spend any more time on this, Paul. I'll let you have the last word. Yeah, for sure. But like, uh, I, I simply want to make the point that our season ended last season when Saliba got injured in a Europa League tie. Many people, myself included, wished he hadn't played in that game and were pretty vocal in saying it was a mistake for him to play in that game. That is the risk. When you play, you risk getting injured. And that is true for every game. It's true for every training session. We've actually lost quite a lot of our players to injury this season in training sessions. If, if it was so risky to play, no players would play preseason games. But we know they need to because we know that doing that is actually part of a fitness regimen and an ability to be prepared for the cadence of a season. And I would simply suggest that the idea that you can suddenly stop being in the cadence of the season is potentially not correct. And we don't know. So that makes it difficult. But Paul, final word on what I think is an argument about being nervous. But but the biggest yeah. reason I think this argument even exists, and we can maybe touch on this, is we just don't have enough players in certain departments. And because we don't have enough players in certain departments, we are in an elevated state of concern about certain players. Like Saliba and Gabriel both start this game, maybe for periodization, but in part because there's just about no other option. So two things can be true. It was a risk to play them. We almost didn't have another option. Paul, final thought on that? Yeah, I mean, the option was playing left back, Kivior. And so that was that. Um, like, I think it's an interesting uh, discussion around, is that an appeal to authority? And it partly is. But it's actually appeal to, to your point, teams who have data, team, teams who have skin in the game, teams who have a couple of decades of experience of learning what worked and what didn't. Hundreds of games, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, Man United, ha ha, um, Manchester City, the closest, I mean, you know, Arteta spent whatever, two, best part of three years there learning from the best run club in the world. So it's kind of an appeal to authority, but it's not really. It's an appeal to clubs who've studied with not just the fitness data, but the outcome of selections, impacts, living with its skin in the game, huge amounts of data. And what they do is they never want to drop the levels or at least stop playing their football. And I think that's the biggest part of it for Arteta. Put out a team that is recognizably Arteta ball for the sake of your momentum, your psychology, your use of the players, your keeping it. Like eight changes in the game. There's something here for everybody. Yeah, and it's funny, by the way, because that's the area where you and I disagree the most, only in the sense that I feel we could have played all children in this lineup, lost 8-0, and beaten the pants off Brighton on Saturday. On Sunday, I don't think, I don't believe in a culture of winning. I don't think that exists personally when the games that you are winning have no jeopardy because everybody okay, knows. But you're just no thinking jeopardy. about Brighton. Right. My, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't like, had we lost this game by seven clear goals, 
I do not believe that would have had any impact on anything that happens the rest of the season. If, that's just my opinion. It doesn't mean it's right, but like. But you would agree he has very high standards and not just that he has sure. very high standards. He has a culture where everybody knows you don't drop your level. But let me give you an example. Eric Ten Hag said, we don't play friendlies when he beat us in a very violent game in New Jersey in the summer. How has his we don't play friendlies ethos converted into performance when it mattered? You know, I, I don't I don't think that there's enough correlation. But so so let's do this. I want to talk about the kids that I want to talk about the academy players who did not come on uh, in this game. But before we do that, let's talk about the actual game a little bit because we're 22 minutes in and haven't talked about the football. And Tim, I thought it was an okay performance, a little bit of this, a little mm -hmm. bit of that. But I think there's a few things that we can sort of dig into from this performance. And <clears throat> one of the things that I want to ask is, because I think it's really the most important question. Can you give me the, the player or couple of players that you felt had a performance that might put, put them in a better position to be trusted, to play more, to have a better moment going forward in terms of what they showed their manager, which I accept is maybe the point Paul was trying to make <laughs> in his previous yeah. and, and that's the thing. That's one of the reasons I also find um, this conversation, I'm not accusing, I th we're reflecting this conversation, I think, not starting it, is that mm. clearly we do rotate for these games. Like in our, Europa League, in our Europa League knockouts against Sporting Lisbon last year, like we, we rotated. Um, in, in this game, for me, there was, there was a clip. The, the guys you're looking at, right, are the guys who aren't getting minutes, basically, because everyone else is a little bit set on the ladder. Maybe someone like Trossard, it's like, can you get one of those front three places or that left eight position for yourself rather than being like the 12th man? But the 12th man's not a bad position to be in. You know, Eddie, I kind of think we know what we've got there, although I, I thought he was really, really good in this game, but contrarily frustrated me because I just thought, why don't you do this all the time? Like you clearly understand like the principles will all round play, but you're looking at like your Kivior's, your um your uh, and look, El Nenny Cedric, we know they don't have a future. So it was a mix of like those guys. We probably know Ramsdale doesn't have a future either. So it's a mixture of those guys, then some of those guys who are kind of on the fringes and in the trusted circle to either be one of the first off the bench. So it's it's really like Kivior and Nelson, I think, are the two guys that my my eye was really drawn to. And um, I, I thought Nelson was excellent. Nelson Nelson's the big winner in this game for me, anyway. Maybe it didn't um, it didn't butter any parsnips for Mikel Arteta I don't know but mm. he's the one you're really looking for because he's the one that just never comes on ever until it's like like he came on in the 92nd minute at Villa Park like those those are rubbish minutes basically so he's the one who's like I'm basically slipping off the ladder like I'm only just really making the bench at all like maybe if everyone's fit I don't make the bench like he's in that kind of category and yeah. he's trying to build to a place where not where he's going to start or be first choice long way off that but can I be trusted to come on for more than stoppage time and I thought he really I th again it's, it's only one game so you can't be absolutely definitive but I thought he really answered that question because we haven't seen much of him this season and a lot of us I don't think anyone thinks he's like better than Saka or Martinelli but I do think a lot of us have kind of wondered why he hasn't got that many minutes particularly when Arsenal committed to uh, giving him a contract 
I wrote something in pre-season where I was like, this only makes sense if he starts playing more minutes. Otherwise, I don't understand why we've done it. And he's getting fewer minutes. And there might be good reasons for that on vis-a-vis the training ground that we don't see, etc. But I thought he was excellent in this game. I really did. He can sharpen up on a couple of details. Sometimes he holds the ball a little bit too long. But can you really blame a guy who's getting zero minutes for, you know, maybe trying to beat that extra player? That's just the position you're in. But I thought he was really, really strong. I thought he linked up really well. You know, he linked well with Cedric. If, you know, if... Nelson gets more first team minutes that's not who he's going to be playing with linked up really well with Eddie and not just for the goal showed very very smart feet I think he showed a good idea of when to go for the fullback and when to come back inside and to me again it's it's limited showings right but it was one of those where I came away thinking why doesn't this guy get more minutes why and particularly when we're like I the the one issue i really have this season i think we're i think we hammer our wide players saka and martinelli i really do i think i think we're short there i think we that i I, I really can't understand the center forward talk at all i think it's so clear when nelson is not trusted to play at all smith rowe is no longer considered a winger i don't really think trossard's a winger like I i really don't think we were anything else in those positions i'm really confused as to why people think that ivan tony is the answer to that so like we hammer those guys and we need someone to like at least take those 15 20 minutes off them or or come on and influence the game and i i felt he should like if if this is you know kind of illustrative of his level then i don't see why you can't do that um based on this showing he's a weird player because he's been used very sparingly i can't think of too many times he's been used and not impressed You know what I mean? Like, it's weird. He's a player who's been used sparingly, who has come on and impressed, and those impressive cameos have not seemed to have led to more opportunity, despite the fact that we re-signed him. Yeah, so we've we, got like a, a yeah. small sample size, but it's but it's actually quite a good yeah. small sample size. And look, a, a lot of his bigger interventions, yeah, they've been at home to rubbish teams, but that's fine. We play we rubbish team. Teams near the bottom of the league. We play, we play <laughs> those teams rubbish. quite a lot. Like we play those the, those fixtures happen a lot, and he can have those minutes. Like that's that's my view. Do, do I want him starting away at Man City? Possibly not. But you know, can he at least have half an hour at home to Nottingham Forest? Like, I don't see why not. At least for the time being, with the team we have, like you know, it seems like he should play. Paul, I, I agree with Tim's perspective that. Nelson is sort of the the winner, quote unquote, of this game. Um, I thought that was a live PSV team that played with enough energy and enthusiasm and and talented players out there for it to be a reasonable measure. He's playing in a very mix and match team. He he worked well with Eddie. He worked well with Cedric. He did a lot of stuff. And and I'll actually not disagree with Tim, but say this about a point Tim made. Tim made Tim said, sure, maybe he tried to beat the extra man a few times, but can you blame him? I would actually argue that when I've not been impressed with Nelson, it was when he played within himself in games and just made the safe three-yard pass and just wanted to keep it ticking over, that a Nelson who's willing to show some of his more precocious talent is is a Nelson we can use. So I think that's a good sign. Um, I also think the reason this that he's the one to focus on is I don't think anybody else played in this game that we don't know enough about already for the most part. Everybody else, we kind of know who they are and know where they are in the pecking order. Nelson was the one player that you're like, we're still sort of figuring out what he has to offer and whether he can get in more. I think he did basically what you could ask 
to push his way into more of the manager's consideration. Uh, yeah, Nelson. Um, I do think there's a difference in this kind of a style of a game where I thought it was there for him. In fact, somebody needed to kind of grab it and bring it to life. So I like that he ran with the ball. But when he comes on in a tight game with, you know, 15 minutes to go, I don't think Arteta wants him to kind of free ball it. I think he wants him to come on in a very defined role. So it's kind of interesting. These games are different. And this kind of opposition, though it was going to be transitional, end-to-end, open, and I thought he brought the performance that brought this team to life, him and Cedric. And uh, actually, I did think Cedric looks pretty sharp. Um, so here we go again. But like, yeah. hopefully, hopefully he's uh, five five men away from having to be a useful player for us. Let me ask you this, Paul. Actually, but before we yeah. move on, because this I think is a live question. We have five defenders. The fifth one is Kivior. The other four are our four starters, basically. Yeah. I don't think Kivior has been as impressive as people would like to feel really good about him being number five. I can't believe yeah. I'm about to say this, and the answer is probably no. But is there a world where this Cedric performance is... Because also, I think he was kind of culpable defensively. Let's be clear. Like, he looked okay going forward. He had some culpability going to, back defensively. But, like... In the crunch situation we find ourselves in right now, is there any world where you think Cedric is going to play meaningful minutes after this? Or is it for everyone's best interest that that not be the case? If you can tell me how desperate our situation gets, I can give you an answer to that. Hopefully not. Mm. Um, But like if you run out of enough players, uh, like I do actually think it was useful to have your Nannies, your Jorginho's, hopefully not your Cedrics, getting some minutes here because you absolutely never know <clears throat> how they're going to be needed or required as we go along. Um, and, and like Ural Nenny, ex- not exciting as a prospect for our highest levels of football. He does keep you ticking along in the same way, doing the same sorts of things, but just not to quite the same level. I think what I wanted to say on the Nelson discussion, right, mm-hmm. is – I am puzzled about Nelson also because he seemed to be the player of that type that Arteta did trust last year. He kept bringing him on for 10, 15 minutes when he needed something. And so, like, I I just bought into, like, they get each other. And to your point, whenever he came on, he always looked lively, bright. Uh, some games he had a significant impact. Other games he just looked the part and and brought some energy and speed and and like the other thing I like about him is he's always something different than whoever he came on to replace. He's different to Martinelli on the left. He's different to Saka on the right, and he asks a different problem of the defender. And this year, this season, surprisingly, and I don't get it, uh, based on what we've seen and that kind of my imagined relationship between him and Arteta that they, you know, he, he's defended him for a long time. He's kept he him around him. for a long time. He yeah. 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 And so that's a real puzzle for me that it isn't adequately answered by the idea. I'm thinking, well, he sees him getting busy over the kind of the, ho- the holidays, January, February. That's where these young guys, him and Smith row. I'm not convinced by that argument based on ha- the patterns they've been used but it should be the case that he has them in mind that they're going to play a much bigger role as we go along in the second half of the season when there's so many games and so many injuries. 
it's definitely going to, we definitely have the need for those guys if they can step up, but I'm a bit puzzled by how both have been used when they've been fit and available. Yeah, I I think that's totally fair, and I agree with it. Let's do some quick hits, Tim. First quick hit, you sent some audio from the ground I really enjoyed for the instant reaction, and uh, one of the audio clips you sent was a lusty singing of Aaron Ramsdale's name and his mm-hmm. song. Um, obviously, so much support for him. I thought he had a good game, and I'm really happy for him that he did because he's had, obviously, a couple not good ones against West Ham and Brentford. And then something hit me. We may have just seen his final performance, barring injury. I think you can make a strong argument. We've just seen the final Aaron Ramsdale appearance for Arsenal. Because um, I'm not sure where else it would come. If we had drawn someone maybe a little easier in the FA Cup, maybe there, maybe he'll get it anyway, if he's still at Arsenal at that point. So quickly on the support he received and and where you think we go from here with it, if you think that might have been his his swan song, as crazy as it sounds? Yeah, I, I don't think it was. I, I don't think Arsenal will countenance letting him go in January just because they don't really have a lot of depth in there unless they get a really silly offer I have to say I'm nervous about Chelsea because I think their goalkeeper's rubbish <laughs> and you know, Ramsdale would absolutely walk into the Chelsea team and you know it would they've got they've got like a Matt Turner level goalkeeper you, you um, wouldn't sell him for the kind of money Chelsea routinely splurges on teams knowing where we might be able to strengthen for a title challenge that it would be a really interesting dilemma. Right? I'm not sure because I think Chelsea's FFP position is is pretty close to the wind at this stage. And it's the same in Newcastle. Newcastle lost their goalkeeper. And ordinarily you'd say, well, Ramsdale to Newcastle makes loads of sense. But I don't think they've got much wiggle room with FFP either. So um, it would be interesting. But yeah, maybe maybe you, you make the gamble and say, actually, I, I can get a good wide player for this money. And that's you know, all right, we're taking a risk with the goalkeeper, but we're definitely going to need another forward kind of thing. So, but I, I don't see that happening for, for those, largely those FFP reasons. I do think he'll play against Liverpool. Um, I do think he'll get that game, but it, it's, it's abs- it was absolutely clear from the beginning. Ramsdale was at our end in the first half. Now you're not directly behind the goal at PSV. You're kind of up in the gods a bit, but yeah, just lustily sung all the way through. Even when PSV hit the post and it had nothing to do with him, his name was sung. And you know, like I said on the instant reaction, we're 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 on I think a bit of a knife edge with this. Just just in terms of the fans' reaction, in terms of like there hasn't been like a turn against David Raya, but like the singing of Ramsdale's name is you know it tells you the position and actually the the one time it felt a little more than a bit pointed was there was an almost at this stage ironic singing of England's number 1 which clearly like that's another factor for Ramsdale there's a euros um coming up and he's like really he's lost the chance to compete for that spot and really he's looking at not getting in the squad at all because of this situation but that that was followed by a lot of people chanting Arsenal's number 1 um, at him so yeah you, you can see where certainly like the match going fans I'd say in general you can see where where they come down on this and you know I, I don't know if maybe we're moving to more of a stage of resignation um, or at least people that, that really feel like that are and are beginning to realize that this this isn't really a fight like this is done and it's kind of over um, 
and you know that's kind of sad but what I will say as well I, I think there was focus on this competition because when all this kicked off there was that kind of maybe Ramsdale will play the Champions League games which obviously hasn't happened and he was such a big part of us getting back into the Champions League that he really deserved that and like his Instagram caption was you know I'm so proud to make my Champions League debut and you've got to think about the trajectory of Ramsdale's career he was relegated three times and he gets this big move to Arsenal we qualify for the Champions League like you absent the last couple of months it's meteoric you don't usually see players goalkeepers doing this so you can tell that that was really significant for him um, playing in the Champions League and, and I'm glad that at least he got that and he deserved that and he deserves whatever you think of the goalkeeping situation I think he deserves to be in the good graces of Arsenal fans and didn't lose and played well and you know yep. I think coming off of prior performances I think that's great look I I would also say this whatever you think of Ramsdale and I like Ramsdale and I I was wrong at the beginning of the season when I said I thought he'd ultimately retain the position he hasn't and that probably was never the plan if the manager has decided Raya is the keeper I don't think there's any universe where you keep a backup goalkeeper rather than converting him into money you can use on a position you need to win the title not only that, but you may make Raya better by ending this situation where the fans clearly have a favorite and it's not the guy playing. I don't want Ramsdale to leave the club, but I want the club to win the title and win the Champions League and win everything. And if Mikel has picked Raya, converting Ramsdale into money that we can use to be better and potentially taking some pressure off Raya will make us better. It will break my heart to some extent, as it will many people's, but it is the right move in my view. Paul, is that is that crazy? No, I'm with you on this. Um, I've formed my opinion listening to you guys talking about it right now, which is mm. totally different to what I would have said earlier. Love it. <laughs> but, but, like, I'm with you. This could be uh, Ramsdale's f uh, signature, sorry, swan song for us, his final performance. Um, I hear you, Tim, in terms of FFB. I hadn't really thought about through those implications. But we no literally No one seems to have, care about that, just as a reminder. <laughs> well, also, even if they do... Like, we have a goalkeeper on loan at the moment that we're going to buy in the summer. Like, we could end up with, like, seven clubs in a chain who all have their goalkeeper on loan that they plan to buy in the summer to dodge FFP. I guess there are probably ways to do it. And somebody offers us big money for Ramsdale at a time when... See, the thing that I don't get about the Ramsdale thing is when Arteta's asked about it in presses, we've all seen it, There's there's something eerie about his the intensity which he won't address the topic i don't think it's just that he's fed up and asked about it i don't think that's it at all i think that tell this reminds me of like the ozil days the kind of bad apple in the camp and i don't think ramsdale's being a bad apple but i think it's kind of stinking the place up for the club that ramsdale's deeply unhappy his father did that interview it can't be an accident he didn't accidentally go out and talk to somebody in the media. Mm. I think the fact, I think what that's really about when Arteta's kind of in this scowl, not wanting to answer that, is kind of a message to his own squad and his own cl club that he's not happy with all of this Ramsdale thinking, thought, talk. He's shutting it down. That isn't, it's a bit for the media and a bit for, but it's really about he's not happy. And what's he do when he's not happy with a person in his camp that's not working for him? Ramsdale's obviously not 
just playing along, feeling good about things. I'm not saying he's doing anything bad, but he ain't been happy, Joe. And mm -hmm. he's pissed. And he has a right to be pissed. Yeah. And it's going to get resolved, I think. And we're going to take 30 million if somebody offers to us. And to your point, we need other players filled even more urgently. And we can get another lone goalkeeper who's very, very good in the twilight of his career, who's 30, 31, and he's in on loan for the rest of the season, and he's covered for Davaraya. And Davaraya then knows he's the guy and he'll play better. Like, you can see all the reasons why this could happen. Yeah, you, you look at big clubs and who their backup keepers are, and by and large, it's not a position they focus on no matter how much money they have. I mean, Liverpool lost Allison for a couple of games. They played Kelleher. Like, it doesn't, that's not where you want your resources going. I, we we got to move on to the to the academy kid discussion, but there's just a couple other things. And Tim, I'd love to do this in like 60-ish seconds or less because I don't think it's huge. But basically, um, I, I, well, one thing, obviously, Declan Rice playing at center back, Mikel needed to get a look at it. It's a travesty that he needed to get a look at it, but it's a testament to how thin we are at the position. So I think it's a positive that we got to look at that. Um, although... I would prefer we never do it, as I'm sure everyone else would as well. Um, the two other players that I just had notes on, I think Inkedia did well. He took his goal well. This is a sort of Inkedia performance that reminds you that there is a player in there, and Mikel sees that player, and that player sometimes comes out. It's frustrating the things he doesn't do, but the things he does do, he does well. But the one that really stands out to me, the opinion I'm starting to fall in the line with what's becoming more narratively popular is, I just don't know if Trissard's a wide player anymore. I think at this mm. stage of his game, at this age, where he is athletically, he's an interior. He looks okay when he plays false nine for us. He looks reasonably good when he plays left eight for us. It makes you realize the Martinelli job is so thankless because when Trissard tries to do it, he doesn't do it very well. Martinelli out on the touchline, running back and forth, covering the hole that le that's left by the left back, getting into the overlaps, trying to cut in crosses from the byline, trying to find a way into the box from a wide position to still get some shots off. It's a tireless role. I don't know that Troussard really looks like he has the burst for it so much. And I think that is another takeaway that actually supports the argument too, that Nelson could play more and that we're light at, at wide player because I don't know that Troussard is looking as convincing in that position specifically. Yeah, completely agree. I, I think uh, Clive and Scott covered this very well on the instant reaction. And I think Scott's point was as players get older, they tend to gravitate towards one of the boxes. Um, because playing in Scott's words, playing out wide is a young man's game, um, and and I don't I don't think it's necessarily because like Trossard, what is he twenty nine thirty? Like you know he's not. I I think our squad like our team's so young now that we age people <laughs> very quickly. Like Jorginho's like thirty one, and we talk about him like he's a hundred, <laughs> but it's like I, I think it's just probably the athletic profile Trossard has always had. Um, and it's quite interesting because Arteta seems to have completely ruled out the idea that Smith-Rowe can play wide. And Smith-Rowe and Trossard, I think, are very similar players, very similar types of player. Um, maybe some of that with Smith-Rowe is also his athletic profile, shall we say. Maybe he thinks mm, he's probably... That, that explosiveness you need that like Martinelli has is is very, very difficult to find. Uh, but I agree. I like Trossard. Trossard's one of those players that I don't really think of him in a position. I think of him in an area and he's a half space player. That's, that's what he is. And when he plays wide, he can go outside on his left foot, but his, his inclination is to come inside and combine. It's very like Rosicki, Smith Rowe kind of coded. So yeah, I, 
I agree with you. I, I thought there was some, like, I think what Trossard needs is he needs to be close to people to combine with them. I think that's why he's a good false nine as well. I don't think he's as good as being left on his own. And that's basically what we do to Martinelli. More than anyone else in this team, we say, you're on your own <laughs> over mm-hmm. there because you can do it because you can cover the ground and because you're one of the players who can like take two people on and things like that. And yeah, it, it's just the profiles are very different. I'm with you. I think Nelson's, um, even if there's a gap in quality, Nelson's much closer in terms of style and fit. Yeah. All right. I... I'm prepared to sort of move on from the players that actually played in this game. Another good Kai Havertz performance, I thought, overall, in general, just a player that I think we're now starting to accept is good and can play for Arsenal, which is a nice change. We're going to talk about the academy players not playing, and of course we are going to address the serious problem that Mikel has with the academy and how he hates academy players and doesn't want to see them thrive. A kid although that is an opinion that is out there and we have to uh, not address it, but address the question of the path for Academy players coming on, uh, coming through, then a bit on our Champions League future and a bit on Brighton. So all of that has to help, uh, has to happen, but it cannot happen until at least a good chunk of you listening create an e-commerce store. How can we possibly carry on as a podcast knowing that the ability to create an e-commerce store is within you and we have not helped you unlock it. Well, the way we can unlock it is with Shopify. I have built e-commerce stores on Shopify. I am not a coder. I have, A lot of people say I'm not even an intelligent human being. That's how easy it is. The things I love about Shopify, first of all, if you're going to have an e-commerce store that sells anything, it has to look professional. People aren't going to spend their money with you if they're like, oh, it looks like a, you know, a three-year-old made this uh, e-commerce store. They give you the ability to click and drag and drop and do pr- pr- really professional pre-built templates for an e-commerce store. But they handle the stuff that you don't want to be an expert on. Taxes and shipping and checkout and payment processing and how you get paid out. They do all that. Things like, um, you know, how do I then have my products sell on Instagram and sell on Facebook and sell on TikTok? It's hard to do that. They make the integrations click by click simple, which is great. So I would say, um, you know, if you have something that you want to do, maybe to convert into a business that's just been a hobby, Shopify is going to make it the easiest way to make your products reach the people that you might want to sell to. Shopify powers, this is crazy, ready? 10% of all e-commerce in the US, 10% of all of it. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash arsenalvision, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsenalvision now to get your to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsenalvision. Okay? Now, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let's face it, the holidays can be tricky emotionally. Um, I just had a friend over to the house last night whose father passed uh, in terrible circumstances this past year. The last time she saw him was Christmas of last year. And so understandably, she's struggling right now. You know, we talked to her about it, but it's clear, like she's struggling. If this is a time of year where you're struggling, talk to somebody who understands how to work through those things with you to get you into a better place. It's not that your friends and your partner and your family can't do that for you if those people are in your life. It's just that a professional can do it in a way that might lead to more personal growth and and success in trying to work through that stuff. Or maybe you just want to be a more effective human being. Like I, I found therapy to be a tool for just unlocking potential a little bit. Um, 
BetterHelp lets you do it without having to leave the house and drive to an office and drive home. And if that person doesn't work, is there another office nearby? Or I didn't really click with that person because clicking with your therapist is really important. And the next one's a 45-minute drive away. You can do it from home. Uh, it, it is such a, a great thing to do. And I, I think BetterHelp is a great way to try it. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash vision today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash vision. And finally, when we hit January, we're going to be talking about adding talent to this Arsenal team, but you don't have to wait till January to add talent to your team. Oh, how about that one? Yes, Elliot. Yes. Um, Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place instead of going on 8 million different hiring sites. Like, why would you do that? And then have to check emails for all of them and check listings for all of them. Uh, you can do it all on Indeed. If you need to hire, it, you know, there's over 350 million global visitors according to Indeed data. With Instant Match, you get uh, over 80% of employers get quality candidates the moment they sponsor a post, uh, according to US Indeed data. So, like, this is the way to do it. Um, Indeed is also great because you only pay for the applicants that meet your must have requirements. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So, Listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Tim, is that enough of that? Indeed. Okay. Tim, why does Mikkel hate young people so, so much? <laughs> despite... And it must pain him that he has the youngest or second youngest team in the Premier League. That must be, it must keep him up at night. But all kidding aside, uh, none of the Academy kids got on in this game. Um, Rule Walters, Lino Souza, and uh, Ethan Winery, excellent, talented young people. They did not get on. And um, a lot of people are pretty upset about that, actually. I think where that has led is to people saying, Mikel just doesn't find opportunities to get Academy players playing time. What's your take on them not playing in this game and whether there's any further ex, uh, exploration of the topic needed? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all pretty young. Like, Nwanyer is 16, right? Or is he 17 now? 17. That's that's still pretty young. Like, these guys aren't 16 20... 16 here. Uh, yeah, he's 16. You're uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, because he was 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's not even 17. Like, mm -hmm. it's... Again, it's a kind of conversation I find confusing because the volume of anger around it versus the number of people who actually watch the Academy games, like, I'm sorry, that's not an equation that marries up in my head. I, I just don't believe that this many people are watching the under-21s and seeing these guys and going, these guys are absolutely ready for the first team. Like, I, I just don't believe that. Um, listen, everyone, every, like, I don't think any supporter is immune from wanting to root more for their academy players than, than any other player. It is special. It absolutely is. But I, I do find like the feverishness around it a little bit confusing because honestly, because obviously I didn't really experience this game online. I was there and like, I, I, and I spoke to a lot of people at the game, during the game, after the game. You can hear what people are saying and shouting and blah, blah, blah. Nobody brought it up at any point um, from, from what I could gather. And it was just one of those things that really didn't matter. It, it seems like a very online thing. And like, yeah, I just don't believe that many people know these players well enough. And like, 
th- these guys will be fine. Like being in the squad for a Champions League game, going through that preparation, training with the first team, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, like first of all, that's great experience in its own right. It just is. But also, like again, maybe this is something at the risk of sounding dismissive, you get more in the stadium. The level of these games is so high. Like, it's so high. I know people will be like, oh, PSV, they're, you know, they're just in the Eredivisie. And yeah, the Eredivisie is like nowhere near the Premier League. I mean, they've won every single game. <laughs> um, but like the pace of these games, it honestly, it's like watching a 90-minute Rondo session. It's all one touch, bang, bang, bang. You get knocked out the way. Back, like Bakayoko, their winger, I think he's 19. And he like, I was talking to a PSV fan friend of mine afterwards who said, like, she just said, yeah, he's our, he's already our best player and we'll sell him for loads of money in the summer to a Premier League club and all of that. And and again, I said this on the instant reaction, this was a big game for PSV because a lot of players like him know that if they play well against Arsenal, when that Premier League interest comes in the summer, that, you know, that helps. That helps if they put themselves in this shop window and, and you know, maybe it gets them a bit more salary or whatever. Like, you've got to remember with PSV, one of their best players, after they won their Champions League qualifier and got into the group stage, one of their best players signed for Nottingham Forest, right? So that, like, that's that's how much these guys, you know, want to move to the, the, the land of milk and honey, but they're good. And the level of hey, these Tim, games is so high, like, they they weren't jokers. They really weren't. Tim, I was just going to say on that point, did you hear the Handbrake Off podcast? I was listening to it yesterday evening on Bakayoka. No. Uh, very interesting. So apparently Brentford were in for him, $35 million in the summer. It was going to happen. Then PSV qualified for Champions League, and he said, hang on a second, I'll stick around, get my name out there. So, like, that's what you're dealing with. Brentford, very sharp, dumb. Plonk, I think it was 30 or 35, but let's say 30 plus 5 in add-ons. I might, I can make numbers up because, I mean, who here cares? 30, 35 plus 5, and uh, that's what he was worth last summer. That's yeah. what we were dealing with here. He looked great. I mean, he, he was absolutely the – he's where your eye went to. And you could tell. You could tell he was like – I, 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 if, like I say, if it's showtime, yeah, and if he turned down Brentford, like that's he's got a lot of basically what he's saying with all due respect to Brentford is playing the Champions League group stage, play well against an Arsenal, someone like that. Maybe I go a bit higher in the league, maybe I get a Villa, maybe I get a Newcastle or something like that. So that's that's where the level of ambition's at. And we haven't seen any of that. We saw Nwanieri for like 30 seconds when we were 3-0 up in a Premier League game. And so we haven't really seen any of these guys. And it, it also has a wider impact on the rest of the team. And this does go into, yes, it is difficult to find opportunities for these guys because when you introduce a slightly rogue element into the team, it means everyone else has to run a little bit more. And I, I, I think the fact that they went away um, at their age and, you know, saw this game up close and with the team, I, I think that's great. And I think all of them should be shooting for next year, do I get on in that Champions League? Well, the group stage um, goes on for about 15 years uh, from next year. So by the time it finishes, actually, they'll probably be ready for their debut. So, But, you know, their, their target is very much about next year. I think 
anything any of them get around the first team this year is all good. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, look, I think it's a bit like the other discussion we had on um, putting out strong lineups in nominally dead rubbers. At some point, you become a big club. I used to love the Wenger days where we bring on these kids and they were full of hope and stuff, but we were still a bit shit, unfortunately. Um, and that was my compensation. I mean, Tim and I used to have our Twitter wars about who spotted such and such a young talent first and nominated him for a future uh, Ballon d'Or. And we'd have a bit of a laugh about it. Well, I was having a laugh about it. I think Tim was actually dead serious about whether he was the guy who spotted him first. And like, now I look at these players I think Nwaneri is a really interesting one in that we did actually bring him on for a game out of the blue and the whole world talked about why did we do that and here we are, the other end of the spectrum and the whole world, or part of it, is saying why don't we give one of these guys a chance? And I think there was a time we were losing players from our academy to Chelsea and that was a, a sign to the academy to say we believe in you and we will... You have a future here. And we did it once. And it wasn't about blooding young players and incorporating them into our process. I think Tim's spot on. These players should be absolutely psyched that they get to train with these guys at London Colony. They're kids. These are adults. It's different levels. Like if I'm Ruel Walters or I'm Nuaneri and I'm 16 and I'm playing up against Odegaard and Saka and whatever and I can't get on the pitch... That's bloody right. That's sending the right message to me that here's where you're going. You can train with these guys. You can learn the methods. But we're a top-level club, I hope, playing at that level. And everything has to be earned. And you don't see the kids playing for Bayern. You don't see kids you've never heard of playing for these teams. And it's levels and standard. And eventually it seeps into every corner of the club that you're industrial grade, top level. And it's not that we're not giving kids a chance. We are. They're getting to train with the first team at London Colony on a regular basis, getting that experience, going on these trips, becoming professionalized, learning how to handle themselves around a team. It's not just coming on and having a bright 10 minutes. It's how Rule Walters went on a preseason. He's been to a number of games. He's around the squad, not just because he might come in handy, but because he knows how to carry himself, how to be, how to adult around the adults, how to be professional, not giggling in the corner with his mates, uh, thinking this is the best thing ever that they're out. Like, this is serious business. We're going to try and win the Champions League this year. We've a, whatever, a one in 10 chance that's probably as good as it gets most years. We're going for it. Yeah. I, so I have some strong opinions on this. You'd be shocked to hear. But uh, we have to say goodbye to Paul before we do that. And then Tim and I are going to cover knockout rounds of the Champions League and the Brighton preview. So uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paul. Woohoo! And uh, for those watching on YouTube, he will simply turn into a dark circle here on the screen. Um, so a few things. First of all, let's, let's read a couple of things from Mikel. Paul, are you going? Yep, there you go. He turned into that circle. It's actually a colorful circle. What do I know? Um, 
So, so a few things. First of all, and how hard it is to blood young players. Yeah, obviously it gets harder and harder. So the talent has to be really good and you have to find and build the space in the squad to give that talent an opportunity. We should not forget that because it's a big part of what we want to do in the future. And especially when you have it, you cannot let it go. I think we have some good space and good talent to develop in the environment. But then he said something really interesting, Tim. On if we need uh, to change how we see academies, if selling players can also be considered success. Sometimes. It's about timing as well and the competition they have in their position. Some days you develop a lot of midfielders, then it's strikers, and then you cannot really accommodate all of them. The club has to have the capacity to give a space to those players to go somewhere else, and it has to be part of that strategy for sure. If we had a superstar Bukayo Saka level talent at center back right now, he would have played in this game. But we don't. I think... The, the thing that we have kind of forgotten, because Bukayo Saka has broken our brains, and to some extent so has Martinelli and so has Smith-Rowe, the academies rarely turn out players that make it for you. In Arsene Wenger's entire reign, where he was lauded for his, his youth development, who are the academy players? Ashley Cole, Jack Wilshire, Alex Awobi, Kieran Gibbs. Am I missing anyone? Not really, I don't think. Kieran Gibbs didn't really, really make it, but he played. Ashley Cole obviously made it. Jack Wilshire made it, but injury. And Awobi made it, but wasn't good enough to stay at Arsenal. Okay? None of them were Bukayo Saka. We already have one player in this team that is better than any academy player that developed during Arsene Wenger's time, unless you want to say, I guess Ashley Cole is probably going to have an argument for that, but that's basically it, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to look at it, Reese Nelson was like the most talented guy in our academy of years and years and years. And look at what he's made it to another contract and struggling to get minutes. The level is extremely high. And one of the things that drives whether you get a chance is either you are the most prodigious talent in a generation or there's a need in that position, right? Hector Bellerin got on the pitch because of an injury and that launched his career. So Tim, there is a lot of serendipity involved in this. And I think the goal is long-term to either cash in on your academy players or convert them into meaningful first-team players. And I guess I don't see how you know, Rule Walters getting 15 minutes in this game necessarily would have changed anyone's trajectory. I guess what you could argue is it makes the whole academy feel really good and lifts the academy because it shows them a path and that's inspiring. Mm. You know, but you also look at guys like Amari Hutchinson left for greener pastures at Chelsea where he got 23 minutes last season and is now struggling to get starts at Ipswich Town on loan, right? So it's it's a tough, tough path. Eddie Nketiah by any metric, is a wildly successful academy player. And there are people that think he shouldn't have been kept. So I, I, I guess I don't know what people want. Do, do you just want to be able to say, we gave minutes to academy players? You don't win trophies for that. You don't get money for that. Maybe you can make yourself feel good for that. But the goal is to have Bakayo Sakas and maybe some Eddie Nketiahs. The goal is not to just say, in a dead rubber, we gave minutes to academy players. And I, I just cannot get animated around the idea that doing that advances the interests of the club in any meaningful way. Yeah, completely agree. Like, I, I can't really remember one of these games where we gave a debut to an academy kid and we attribute their subsequent success to that, if that makes mm, sense. Like, it does. Ashley Cole didn't really play League 
Cup or dead rubber minutes. He got into the team because there was an issue with Silvino's passport and he had to play. And And it's, a, it's not just young players, but squad players as well. That's why these games are so difficult to pass because it's difficult to judge players in these games anyway. Really, where you judge them is when they come into the team, when they come into the first team. And I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the times when William Gallas was kind of banished, we went to Man City with uh, Gavin Hoyt, not Justin Hoyt, Gavin Hoyt, his younger brother at centre-back. Robinho ate him alive and he was at Barnet the next season, um, which A, can happen, but B, like, that that was a throwing in at the deep end. Um, and one I, I'm actually pretty sure that Arsene Wenger probably regrets on reflection. Mm. But like, I just don't think 15 minutes against PSV really does that. I think Arteta's right to point out like, is, is there a shortage in your position? Like Charles Sago Jr. started against Brentford in the Carabao Cup, but it, it's kind of twofold. One, he started because we had shortages there. So I think Martinelli was injured at the time and we didn't have a lot of other cover. So we that kind of gave him his debut. He wasn't in the squad here. We we didn't start Sago Jr. in that game because we necessarily think he's the next best thing. It was just we were, carry, we were carrying a vacancy, as it were. Um, but, but also when you – it's easier to start like wide attackers, maybe even fullbacks, but – I, I don't even think fullbacks in this day and age. Like it's very hard for centre backs. I think to like centre back, central midfield, striker. I think those are the hardest positions to break through. And I think if you're a wide player, it's kind of easier um, to do it. So yeah, I, I I'm with you on that. I, ju- I just don't think I, 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 I don't think these games have an enormous, but certainly not at the age of like 16 or 17. Either I again, I'm I'm a bit confused by the furore around it. And look, brutal truth: those three players we're talking about who are in this squad, there is almost no chance all three of them make it. It's more there's more chance that none make it than all three. If we get one of them to be any sort of meaningful player, that's that's a big big result. And that that's that's what we're looking at. We're not we're not we're not really looking at the future of our club there. Like the the numbers tell you that. If it's one player, and maybe you could say that about Nuanieri, like clearly he's really got something about him. Clearly he's gonna have a chance one day. Um, but I don't think we need to be really anxious about that when he's still sixteen. Let's let's be clear also. I think 10 years of Arsene Wenger post-Invincibles broke some people's brains a little bit because we had no money. We were really hamstrung in terms of what we spent. We tried to do it with a youth movement. We finished basically fourth every season. We didn't compete for much of anything. And a lot of young players got to make their debut during that time. But in Arsene Wenger's first act as manager, the first years, he was ruthless as could be. He wanted to win everything. And there was a lot less of that happening. There wasn't a huge influx of academy players coming through. We are in the win everything mode right now with Mikel. I think if there's a player that has a precocious talent that we can bring through, they will get through. I mean, it'd be one thing if Mikel was buying more Williams and doing what United are doing and getting Varans and Casemiros and you'd be like, I don't know, man, this, this doesn't strike me as right. But with what was, I think, the youngest or second youngest team in the league last season and is still quite young, just moving into their early prime, led by players like... Um, Saka and Martinelli, who are, you know, quite young still by any measure. You know, I mean, 
I was looking at the other day, Mikhail Mudrick. Oh, there's a young player Chelsea went for. He's older than Saka and Martinelli, right? Like, so I, I, I think questioning his commitment to youth doesn't make a lot of sense. He did re-sign Eddie and Kedia. He did re-sign Nelson. And the irony is, yeah, people are like, why did we re-sign those guys? We should have let them go. They don't play enough. That just shows you how hard it is to thread this needle. A couple of things from Mikel post-match. I'll, I'll read you one thing, and then I'll read you the scariest thing I think I've ever heard. Um, on why the young players didn't feature. I don't think it was the right context. Making eight changes already to throw them in there against a team that hasn't lost here in almost two years. I didn't think it was the right moment, and I went on to wait to see how the game developed, but it was too much for them. And as well, we have three little issues. We had to make the subs, and then we had no room because we really wanted to play a game as well. The three little issues line is burning a hole in my brain because then when asked about Jesus and Smithrow, and it was great to see Smithrow come back on, so happy he's back, could be huge for us. Emil, we wanted to play a little bit earlier. We were waiting because we had two players with niggles. I was asking them, can they continue? I was hesitant to make the change too early, then have six or seven minutes with 10 men. As a final point, Tim, two players with niggles. Well, that's terrifying. What the hell is that all about? Any thoughts on that? Did you see anything from your seat no. at the ground and through the drunken haze of who those players might be and how nervous I should be about it? No, no. But I mean, you'd, you'd make... Listen, the, t the two players with niggles clearly, I think, had to be Cedric and Elneny, right? Because Elneny, he went off actually injured and Cedric didn't finish the game. And look, maybe it's just because Cedric hasn't played in a long time, but... Um, you know, and, and listen, I, if I'd done the whole instant reaction, I'd have given them both a stock falling just on the basis that you've got to be able to take 90 minutes off these guys on the few occasions when you're called for. But I, I'm going to say it was probably then the Saliba one felt pre-planned to me. And, you know, like he, uh, he was talking about Declan Rice trying that. I, I think, though, to, to build it, sorry, I, I meant to say this in response to the last question, but to build on the point about, our, you know, Arteta was talking about where the opportunity is. Like with Saka, I think, Elliot, he's so good. There are alternate timelines where he's playing in a completely different position for Arsenal because he came through at left back and looked amazing if we didn't have Tierney at the club at the time and subsequently bring in Zinchenko there's another timeline there where Saka is one of the best left backs in the world mm. if if Xhaka wasn't there there's another timeline for me where Saka is one of the best left eights in the world it just kind of turned out that Pepe was a bust and so was Willian. So that's where we needed him. So that's where we put him and that's where he excelled. There's probably another timeline as well where we don't have Martinelli and Saka's the best left winger in the world. And I, like, I think he's just that good that wherever we were carrying a vacancy, he was going to come in. And I think he's... I, I think he's good enough to be world-class in all of those positions if he'd been developed that way. And and so that that is really crucial about where you're carrying vacancy. And that's why some of the maybe slightly less remarkable academy players who've built good careers, like like Awobi, we we had an issue with ball carrying midfielders. We didn't have any, so he got in. In Ketia, like backup strikers are one of the most difficult things to buy on the market. They just are. And actually, he's been really useful because it's a very difficult position to fill in your squad. So, like, uh, and like you said about Bellerin, Ashley Cole, blah blah blah. It's it's only really like Fabregas who it's like I've got to move these other world class players. I have out to get rid way. of Vieira to play yeah, Fabregas. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's incredibly rare and unique. And look, 
I think you look back on the totality of Fabregas's career now, he peaked at 19, 20, 21, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. And that's when yeah. we had him. So in the end, I think we had his peak years. I agree. Um, so, all right. Arsenal's potential opponents, Copenhagen, PSG, Leipzig, Inter Milan, Lazio, Napoli, Porto. I would say that Copenhagen is the draw I want. I wouldn't say that that would be easy. It's never easy in the knockout rounds. I've seen us lose to weak teams. I've seen Olivier Giroud miss chances so that Monaco could knock us out. Like I've seen how this goes. Some of it is about fitness. It's a weird time of year when the when the competition comes back because you're starting to round the corner to think about the, the league as well, and everything gets quite hectic. You need your fitness. Thomas Party is he back from AFCON? Tomiyasu, is he fit and back from Asia Cup? Like, there's going to be considerations. Have you bought anyone in January? Teams can look very different. Um, I think I, I would go out on a limb and say I don't want to play any of the Italian teams if we could avoid it. Inter, Lazio, and Napoli. Although, I don't think there's any one of these teams I'd be terrified of. PSG is the big name in this in this group, but Newcastle beat them 4-1 in a game. Granted, Newcastle got a, a little bit lucky and a little bit battered in that game, but you know, you just don't want to go up against Kylian Mbappe if you can avoid it, right? Because those are the kind of players who can put four past you and end a tie, even if they haven't been very good. Do you have any strong lean on on what's left and how far we can go in this competition based on what's left? Yeah, I'm with you. I don't think there's any team we should really fear. I, I think we'll be... But PSG is the only one where I don't know how the bookmakers would see that. Any other tie would be, we'd be favourites for. It's just how strong we'd be favourite. And, and obviously being favourites doesn't mean you go through. But, you know, we put ourselves in a brilliant position, winning the group with a game to spare, which, by the way, I think for our first season back in the Champions League, we've got Saka with the most goal contributions in the group stage and he didn't even kick a ball in the last game. Like, we've done incredibly well in the group stage and there have been, justifiably, a lot of questions about Arteta's record in Europe. And don't get me wrong, like winning this group doesn't mean they all completely go away. Like the proof will be in the pudding yet. But I think some of those doubts that I think all of us had to different extents, you're thinking, okay, this this looks better. Um, when, when we're playing at full tilt in Europe, this, this looks a lot better. And in fact, we've looked better in Europe than we have in the Premier League probably. But I, yeah, I mean, obviously if I could choose, I'd say Copenhagen. Uh, it's a good trip as well, nice city. Um, like that's the one we'd be pretty strong favourites for. Again, like taking absolutely nothing for granted. That's just the reality, right? That's just football. You, but We play Luton at home and we play Man City away. The odds are different. The bookmakers recognise it. Everyone recognises it. Different teams are of different qualities. Other than that, maybe Porto. Although I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I've followed the Portuguese league rigorously because um, was it Benfica last season? Did pretty well in the Champions League and looked a bit of a force. So again, not to, like I, I don't think there's a... At this stage, there's no such thing as an easy tie. Um, but Copenhagen or Porto would would be where I was looking. And I think the one I don't want is PSG, um, even though I do think we could take them over two legs because to your point, they've got... I I don't think they have much else these days other than Kylian Mbappe, but that's still a lot um, that they've got. And and obviously, they've got a lot of experience um, in this competition as well. So that's clearly, I think, the hardest tie. 
yeah. again with you like Lazio, Napoli, Inter, the away legs of those have a very different temperature regardless of the quality mm. of the teams like the, those away games you don't get a three or four nil at any of those places so you know I, I, I'd, I'd like to avoid some of those definitely. Yeah I, I mean as you said, there's nothing easy you take what you can get. I know there are some people that be like, you guys are the worst. Like, we want to play the big teams. Like, I get if you feel that way, by the way. I would take a 3-0 win by disqualification against everyone en route to a Champions League Well, title. look, if you win it, you don't win it by <laughs> being just like... Like, if, if your ambition is to win it or go for... Like, you will meet a good team. Like, you cannot win the Champions you know what, League Tim? only playing rubbish. Like, to be fair... I do think it is sort of rare that teams win it by playing like, well, we drew PSG in the round of 16. We drew Madrid yeah, in the yeah. quarterfinals and we drew Bayern in the semifinals. And we drew Man City. Like th- some of it, I mean, that does happen with the absolute best teams, but by and large, you need a little bit of luck. The thing I'll say also is there may be an advantage to playing a strong team only in this respect. One of the reasons I think Mikel was quote unquote, not good in Europe is the Europa League is this weird thing where you're trying to win it, but up until the final, you're also trying to rotate. Like, look at last season, right? We went to sporting and played a very rotated team because we had an eye on the title. That resulted in us needing to play a stronger but still somewhat rotated team in the home leg, and we just couldn't navigate it. And we did that, you know, season in, season out in the Europa League. The I'm advantage not... of playing a PSV or whatever is you're going to go full strength, you're going to play as hard as you can, and it's going to be made the best team win. Even a Copenhagen draw, maybe he thinks, I can get away with resting Jesus here on the away leg, and then suddenly it slips away from you, you know? So Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. Like, it, it, it's not just opposition-based, it's competition-based. If we'd mm-hmm. played sporting in the last 16 of the Champions League last season, I guarantee the team selection doesn't look like that. It's not just about sporting, it's about the competition itself. If we play Copenhagen, we're going full strength, both legs, yeah. And, yeah, that's and rightly so, because it's just a bigger priority than Europa League. It just is. No one we played in the knockouts in Europa League really saw the full face of what Arsenal football club looks like. And so we'll see. And by the way, just as a reminder, you know, if people want to be like, yeah, well, you topped the group as an easy group. Manchester United finished bottom. You know, Newcastle are out completely of Europe, I believe, right? Um, this is a hard competition. And the Premier League is supposed to be the best league in the world with all the resources. And the titan of the Premier League, historical titan anyway, Manchester United finished bottom of their group. And Newcastle you know, who are the upstarts who are future title contenders couldn't navigate it. I, I, I think a lot of credit is deserved for topping the group with a game to spare. And it, it shows our quality and it shows that I think our quality is built for this competition as well. So I, I have high hopes for it. Before we say goodbye really quickly, Brighton, painful memory Brighton at the Emirates last season. Mm-hmm. We were very much in the game. They get a goal to take the lead. I think you could see the collective spirit collapse as everyone realized that's it. That really is the end of the title hope. And it was a bit of a, a, a spanking from there. Deserbys Brighton are an interesting team because they can hurt you for sure going forward. But they're very, very open at the back and, and can be transitioned on. Yep. To the extent that I worry about this game, I simply worry about an Aston Villa type situation. I think we will have chance upon chance upon chance to pull them apart. If we do what we did against Villa, we're not going to win the game. You cannot be that profligate with openings. Tim, do you think on home soil with a team that will give us space to counter, what which will feel, you know, maybe similar to, to the Villa game in the, in that respect, 
do you think we'll get the final ball right? Because for me, it's all about the final, the final third action, the last action that we didn't get right against Villa is the key to us, not just potentially beating Brighton, but beating them heavily if we can get it right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, they don't have Moise Caicedo or Levi Colwell, uh, Colwell uh, this time, who I thought both of whom were excellent in the game at the Emirates in April. I think that there's a couple of things about Brighton. They always score and they always concede. <laughs> that's how Brighton games go. Like, I think I'm right in saying that's happened in every Premier League game for them this season. They've scored and conceded. Um, what's also interesting is they play in the Europa League tonight at home to Marseille. It'd be very interesting to see their team selection because I believe this is a bit of a shootout for who wins the group. Mm. And so, and, and they're at home. So like, do they go full strength and really try to win the group? Do they hold back a bit against Marseille, um, settle for second in, in exchange for being a bit stronger for Sunday? That's that's all to be seen, I think. And the other thing I was just looking at is what Brighton's results look like after Europa League games. And they haven't won after any of the last four Europa League games. So not since match day one have they gone and won the next game. Quite a few draws in there, to be honest. Like they haven't been hammered out of sight or anything but you know they're coping with that this season and they're at the tail end of coping with that so I do think it's potentially significant that after the first Europa League game they won because it's the first time but once those games start building up it gets harder and harder and we've had ne- we've had an extra day on them and whatever they do with their team selection tonight they're not going to make eight changes I don't think like we did so we come into this much fresher um, you know probably much more rotated than Brighton are going to be and with a bit more experience of managing these games I do also think after European games it really counts whether you're home or away I think that that really so all of that all of those like soft factors are in our favour but yeah. it's Brighton it's Roberto De Zerbi team they're quite um, they're chaotic in bad and good ways, mm. and they are like they are one team who could completely confound all that and come and beat us three nil again. They could also come and lose five nil. Like they are just one of those teams. So, but let let's have it right. We owe Brighton one because they have been our bogey team since before Deserby t- turned up. There's something about them, and they play you. As well, they come to us and they play us. They go for us. They've done that consistently under Potter as well, and and you know they've they've caught us on the chin a few times. So we owe them one. Our wide boys for once have had a week off. Jesus played like five minutes the other night. So uh, you know I I think these are the some of the best conditions we could hope for to go into a home game against Brighton. In a very weird statistical twist they're actually fourth almost third basically tied for third but fourth on xg defensively in the league away (laughs) it's just sort of a a weird twist they've been pretty good on their travels they haven't played many good teams away against manchester city though just by comparison they lost 2-1 on a game that ended 0.8 to 0.8 on xg yeah, they've been competitive away. I mean, they're a very, very good team. But so our narrative of them being a little bit loose defensively hasn't really shown up in the data anyway on their travels. We'll have to see. I love that they nah. play on Thursday and, you know, that we're home following a, a European week. I think that is a big thing. But the other thing we're going to have to keep an eye on, Tim, is just those those niggles that Mikel mentioned in his post-PSV presser. Not getting a lot of attention. 
uh, very nerve wracking to me. So I mean, it, as long as it's Cedric and El Nenny, that's that's fine. They're the guys that came off. So you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's that's who it is. I will say as well with that stat you quoted, that's also taking into account they got done six one at Villa Park earlier in the season. And I believe from I memory... they won that game on XG, I was going to say, from <laughs> memory, it was every shot went in, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it just, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, I Brighton's one of those teams, right, that I, I think they're very good. Um, and and they have the ability to be very good. But also, what's weird about Deserbi is... He just picks these wild lineups. Like he plays play. He doesn't have a first 11. Very weird. All right, let's leave it there. That's plenty. We've got three big questions tomorrow on Patreon. We've got a big game on Sunday. Going to have an instant reaction after that. Lots more to do. Uh, love you so much for being here. Paul's already gone. Tim's on Twitter. It's Dominator. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure as always. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Hope everyone's doing really well. I know it can be a hard time of year for some people. Wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10. Right now. 